0: Are the reading of god's word his interesting word let's pray and ask his blessing upon the hearing and understanding of it lord we need you we need your help or we want to not just read words not just spend time talking about those words but we want to understand them we want to understand them in a way that does not feed and fuel conspiracy, but feeds and fuels reformation and renewal in our hearts and lives so that we can live in light of the coming of Christ. So we can live loving and longing his appearing and being faithful as we await it. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. When I was in elementary school, When you had library time, there was one book that every kid rushed for, and it was the Magic Eye books. I don't know if you remember these books, but in the 1990s, some engineer came up with a way to put two-dimensional images on a page in such a pattern that they actually hid a three-dimensional object behind them. And so these were the books to check out for two reasons. One, there was no words in them, so every kid loved that. And two, because they were fascinating, they were interesting. if you haven't seen these books before, the Magic Eye books, you can, you can look them up on the internet. I think they're, they're still out there somewhere. But you'd hold the page in front of you and it looked like just a series of patterns just repeated over and over again. But if you stared at them long enough, eventually kind of rising to the surface was this three-dimensional image. You know, Maybe it was a heart, maybe it was you know Mickey Mouse's face, maybe it was a, a castle or something like that. But the, the whole idea was to hide in this pattern of two-dimensional images, a three-dimensional image. And, and kind of the, the cool illustration behind it was that what, what you see is actually there's more than, than what's just there on the page. And the reason I bring that up is because, in a way, that is what John is helping us do through the book of Revelation and how we're to look at reality. That we don't just live mundane, everyday, material, ordinary lives where one successive moment uh, goes after another and history just kind of moves on going nowhere. And we're you know, a nowhere man living in a nowhere land doing nothing. What John is showing us is that behind what we perceive just by sight are spiritual realities that have been going on since before the creation of the world and since the fall that we need to be aware of and alert to so that we can understand why things are the way they are. We have to understand that there is spiritual warfare going on, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but by the prince of the power of this air against the spiritual forces in the heavenly places, and that living the Christian life is one that is, in a sense, not going to be easy because we have an enemy who opposes us. And so we just started looking at is in Revelation 12, John says there is a spiritual battle going on. And he represents it by the image of a dragon who's fighting against the lamb and the people of the lamb. And that this dragon rages against the people of the lamb because in one sense he has been defeated. He's a sore loser who's seeking to, with his last breath, cause as much havoc as he can. And now Revelation 13 is, what are some of the tactics of that dragon against the people of God? So verses 1 to 10, what we saw last week in Revelation 13, the first beast that rises out of the sea represents Satan's attack on the church through the tyranny of political power, seeking to use the political forces that are at play in this world in order to impose oppression, tyranny, and restrictions on the people of God in some form or fashion. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to move on in our passage, and in 11 to 15 of Revelation 13, we're going to see a second way that Satan seeks to attack the church, and it's through the deception of false religion. So look at verses 11 to 15 with me again. So there's now a second beast rising out of the sea there in verse or rising out of the earth in verse 11. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. So verse 11 points out that there's not just one beast, there's two beasts. So the dragon has now two commissioned kind of agents and emissaries that are seeking to go about his purpose, which is raging against the people of the lamb. So the first beast rises out of the sea. Second beast rises out of the earth. So think of the dragon like the general of an army and that he has not just one area where he seeks to attack his enemy. He seeks to attack them on multiple fronts by land, by air, by sea. Think of that famous speech from Winston Churchill, we will you know, we'll fight them on all fronts. Well, this general of this army is seeking to attack the church on multiple fronts, not just political coercion, but through religious deception as well. And notice the first description of this beast that rises out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb. So in Revelation, this should trigger us because we've already met a lamb in Revelation. We've already met the lamb in Revelation, the one who is worthy of all praise and honor because he was slain and ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. But notice the second description of this beast that rises out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and yet It spoke like a dragon. So kids, if you remember the uh, fable or the the fairy tale of Little Red Riding Hood, there was a wolf in grandma's clothing, right? And the wolf dressed up in grandma's clothing so that he could devour Little Red Riding Hood. Now, if you have the real German version of that fairy tale, he actually devours the grandma and the child, but in the American one, (laughs) Little Red Riding Hood gets away, okay? (laughs) Americans don't like an unhappy ending. Well, this is... A beast in lamb's clothing. This is this is like the wolf in Grandma's clothing. this is a beast in lamb's clothing. It tries to look like a lamb, even though it speaks and acts like a dragon. It's seeking to conceal its real inner nature by this outer garment of gentleness and lamb likeness. And what this is revealing is that one of Satan's most often uses, often used strategies is trying to produce good counterfeits, good, deceptive copies, mimics of what God does for the purpose of spreading lies and deception. He seeks to mimic and copy and counterfeit the works of God in order to keep the world enslaved and deceive the people of God. And we kind of see the idea of counterfeits in our own world. When you go to the grocery store, and let's say you're fortunate enough to have a hundred dollar bill on you, I rarely see them, but I hear they're still around, and you hand the grocery clerk a hundred dollar bill, what do they do with it? They hold it up to the light and they're seeking to check, is it authentic? And not only do they hold up to light, but they usually have a special marker under the thing and they mark it. Why are they doing that? Because there are certain things that you hold up to light, it'll show if it's real or not. There are certain markers that you can mark it with where if it's the right paper commissioned by the U.S. Treasury, it will have a certain color or interact with the marker in a certain way. And the reason they do that is because there are so many counterfeit bills out there. They look like the real thing, but they're in the end worth nothing. That is one of Satan's strategies. Well, jump to verse 13 and 14 with me. And in verse 13 and 14, it mentions that the beast is actually able to mimic some of God's works that he demonstrates to his prophets. So verse 13 and 14, the beast performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Sounds like the prophet Elijah, doesn't it? And by the signs that is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So the biblical illustration I think of this is, think of when Moses was commissioned to go to Pharaoh to tell him, let my people go in Egypt. And one of the things that God did for Moses was give him signs that would confirm that he is an authentic agent of the Lord and Pharaoh and the Egyptians should listen to him. Well, part of the reason Pharaoh didn't listen at first is because the own his own magicians of his own court were to a degree, up to a point, able to mimic some of the works that God did through Moses. That's the illustration that's going on here. What John is saying is that to a degree, the religious deception is going to be one in which, like in Moses's day, even Pharaoh's magicians will be able to mimic some of the mighty works of God that will seek to deceive people. Now, there's a debate. Are, Are these genuine signs that Satan somehow was able to supernaturally allow his agents to do, or are these very convincing illusions? And I think it's probably a both in with them. Uh, there, there are many illustrations of um, modern day examples of people claiming to be prophets who have a special word from the Lord, who are doing things that people think this is miraculous. And oftentimes, what is found out is that they're they're just really good deceptive counterfeits. I moved to California for for Bible college in uh, I think 2000 and. Nine. And in 2009, a man by the name of Peter Popoff had just got out of prison. Now, you, don't, you might not know that name. It might have been a news story for you, but it was in California because he had been in prison for 10 years because prior to that, he had started an evangelistic healing ministry in the Los Angeles area where he would have large crowds come and fill out stadiums or event halls. And he would claim to have special words from the Lord and in a special ability to heal. And many people were convinced by it. And what happened was, some people started getting skeptical about it. So they went to his events with a radio scanner. A radio scanner is where you're kind of scanning uh, transmission frequencies in the area to see if you can intercept anything. And what people discovered was that Peter Popoff's wife, before the event started, would kind of blend in with the crowd as if she was just a regular attendant and would interview people who were there. Oh, you know, what brings you here today? Or, you know, what's your name? My name's Kendra and I'm here because I've had back pain for many, many years and I've heard of his ministry. And, oh, and where, where are you sitting today? Oh, I'm sitting in, you know, row 13. Well, during the event, Peter Popov had a uh, hearing thing, not a hearing aid, but a, you know, something where you could transmit radio in his ear. And what they picked up on the radio frequency is Peter Popov's wife saying to him during the thing, a lady named Kendra, who's here, she's sitting in row 13 and she has back pain. And then what the audience would hear is Peter Popov saying, there's someone here named Kendra. She's in row 13. You've been having back pain for over a decade. And all of a sudden Kendra would raise her hand and get all excited and she said, I'm healed, I'm healed he would only pick people who had the potential to have ailments that were psychosomatic or that could be psychosomatically almost healed. It was never the people in the wheelchair, never the people with an amputation. And yet he got a lot of money because of it. And then he didn't pay his taxes and that's it. Him and Al Capone went in prison for taxes, pay your taxes, right? And that was one of the examples of a modern day person who through very convincing religious deception fools people in a very beastly and demonic way. And what's odd is Peter Popak got out of prison and guess what? He did it again. He did it again and and many people followed him. Still deceived. And so what John is showing us here is this is how Satan operates. He seeks to throw out religious counterfeits that seem real, have these special words that people want, have these special abilities that people want. And yet in the end, they're worth as much as a counterfeit $100 bill. Absolutely nothing. Those are what the first beast. I take this second beast as describing... Both a pattern of satanic activity throughout church history that the church is constantly going to have to battle with and that this beast will have a final climactic manifestation before Christ returns. And so I think it's a both and It's both a pattern that you see repeating. And even Paul will warn Timothy about this. Beware of false teachers that are going to come teaching demonic doctrines that are not of the word of the Lord. And yet what I also talk about is in the future a, a lawless one is going to come. An Antichrist who's going to come in, and in concert with that, someone who's going to kind of be his right-hand man, his, his propagandist to spread his lies and deception. And so what has this pattern looked like in history? Well, in the days of John's original audience, we always have to remember, John is writing to real people at a real time, as well as to the church beyond that. But the people that John is writing to originally, they had to deal with the beast of the Roman imperial cult. And the Roman imperial cult was where Every kind of Roman outpost, every Roman city, in order to kind of be in with the Roman Empire, set up a temple to one of the Roman gods and paid homage to one of the Roman emperors because they believed that to maintain favor with Rome, you had to maintain favor with Rome's gods. And if you did not maintain favor with Rome's gods, you did not maintain favor with Rome. And there was a great threat to you. And the Christians saw this for what it was. It was demonic idol worship. So they did not participate in it, which made them public enemy number one. Because Rome thought we have these citizens in our regions that are not paying respect to our gods on whom their are, are, the favor of the gods is what we need to function as a society. And, and they're being offended by these people who are not paying homage to them. And so that was often why Christians were targeted because they thought this is not good for society. During the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant reformers thought that the Roman Catholic Church was a manifestation of the beast because they saw in the promotion of worship of Mary, in the calling people to pray to saints instead of praying to the Father through the Son, instead of seeing scripture as the final ultimate authority, the Roman Catholic Church put tradition and the word of the Pope on the same level with scripture. And the Roman Catholic Church denied that if if you believe that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, you're anathema. And it's literally what was in the Catholic catechism of the time in the 1500s. And so the Protestant reformers said, this is deception. These are taking the word of God and twisting it in such a way that it's something different entirely. It's not the gospel. Now, but what about in our own day? I think one of the main forms that the beast takes in our day, especially in our Western context, is churches that instead of standing against the culture when it contradicts the word of God, they compromise God's word in order to stand in line with culture. And it happens over and over again. You, you have these times where, yes, in our, in our world of kind of affluence with Judeo-Christian values, it's not always been the case, but less and less so more, where certain lines are drawn in the sand when it comes to family and gender and values and different things like that. And when those lines are drawn, it's always a test for a church. Will you twist God's word to go in line with culture? Or will you stand against culture because you will not compromise God's word? And already in the early church, Paul warned Timothy with this thing. He said this. This is one of Paul's last words to Timothy, and it's a warning about this very pattern. He says, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season as he season. Be ready to preach the word whether people want to hear it or not. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Here's why, Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to say what they want to hear. And they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. Paul telling Timothy there is that there's going to be a time, there is a time, and there has been a time, and there will continue to be a time when people will not want to hear what the word says. What, it, what they need to hear. And instead, they will only look for people who say what they want to hear and what they like to hear. And when you have an itching ear, it's you have to scratch it. And their, their ears are burning with wanting to hear that they're wonderful people, they're nice, that you know, it's all about kind of rubbing their ego and making them feel great. And yet, the Word of God is filled with wonderful good news, glorious good news. And yet also, it is filled with bad news. It cuts us to the heart as well as it lifts us up to heaven. And yet sometimes we want to just massage it and make it sound like what we want it to sound like. Now, to get very specific and potentially controversial, here's an example of this in our own day. The largest Presbyterian denomination, so we're, we're a Presbyterian denomination, the largest one is the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church United States of America. We're different than that. and as PC, We're PCA. We always like to kind of distinguish uh, that. The PCUSA, at one point in their history, was a thriving Bible-preaching, truth-committed denomination. And yet now, they ordain practicing homosexuals to the pastorate. Now, they have opened up church membership to those who identify as LGBTQ. And now, and this is at their most recent General Assembly in light of the Supreme Court decision, they have started a denominational fund to provide financial aid to members of their denomination who want to get an abortion. And that's under the banner of the church And that's using the funds that people give to that church. That is a beastly example of Satan's spiritual warfare strategy through the deception of counterfeit religion in our own day. And that's just one example. I try to bring it kind of more close to home. So what does it look like to endure and resist such deceptive counterfeit attempts? Well, I think of a man named John Wycliffe. If you know the name Wycliffe, Uh, Bible translation ministry. Well, it started because of a man named John Wycliffe. He was the first person who translated the Bible into the English language. So he had the Latin Bible, which is all the people had, and yet most of the people didn't know Latin. And he wanted to get the word into their hands because he was so concerned about the doctrine that was being spread through the Roman Catholic Church at the time. And yet, for translating the Bible into English from Latin and giving it to the common person, He was burned at the stake by the Roman Catholic authorities in the 14th century. And yet, here's the very wise counsel. He gave his people at the time, and he gives us today. And he lived and died by this principle. Here's what he said. The true Christian was intended by Christ to prove all things by the word of God. All churches, all ministers, all teaching, all preaching, all doctrines, all sermons, all writings, all opinions, all practices. These are the marching orders of the believer. Prove all by the word of God. Compare all with the standard of the Bible. Weigh everything in the balance of the Bible. Examine everything in the light of the Bible. Test all by the crucible of the Bible. That which cannot abide the assessment of the scriptures, reject, refuse, and cast away. This is the flag which has been planted in the ground. May it never be moved. That's why he gave his life to put the scriptures into your hands. And what's so interesting is in his day, you would go to any average home at the time and you would look on their bookshelf. One, you wouldn't find a bookshelf. And two, you wouldn't find a Bible on their bookshelf. We have, in English, available on Amazon today, I think over a hundred different English translation versions, iterations of the Bible. There's one. If you are a pet owner, there's a pet owner study Bible version. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But there's one for you. And yet biblical illiteracy is rising today. It's dumbfounding that we have so much access where at that time they had none and we're neglecting it. Biblical and doctrinal ignorance is the fertile soil in which the weed of deception thrives and grows. The number one cause of bad theology, the number one fuel for the fires of deception is biblical illiteracy. Having a solid and sound Definition of justification by faith alone, and then knowing where to go in scripture to defend that doctrine, it will not guarantee that you will be invincible to having a works based view of salvation. But I can guarantee you this it won't hurt, all right? It will not hurt. If biblical ignorance is the fertile soil of deception, then being biblically (laughs) informed is the fertile soil in which a renewed mind and a transformed heart can bud and blossom and flourish. Knowing the truth is a prerequisite to being set free by the truth. And the freedom-granting wonder of God's word is the surest defense against religious deception. As we move on in our text, we notice that Satan seeks to attack the church not only through political tyranny and oppression and religious deception, but also through economic discrimination or social ostracism. In other words, Satan seeks to draw people's allegiance away from Christ by, co- by creating a society and a culture in which being a Christian will cost you economically and socially. So look at verses 16 and 17. Also, it, the beast, causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, so there's no economic favoritism here, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. So, buying and selling, the most basic kind of economic activity you can engage in. And when it comes to basic economics or kind of a a living situation that you would want, the best or most basic living situation that one could hope for is some form of work that provides you enough wages to cover your basic needs and the needs of those under your care. I think we agree that's kind of the basic economic standard that we'd love to have. And what John is showing here is that one of Satan's tactics is to make it hard, if not impossible, to make a living like that without compromising your allegiance to Christ, without compromising your convictions and your conscience. And here's what that looked like for John's original audience who lived under the dark shadow of the Roman Empire. If you are a resident of Ephesus, for example, so that's one of the people that John wrote to, one of the seven letters in chapter two, you would have to take up one of the trade guilds of the city of Ephesus. So let's say, for example, that that was carpentry, all right? In order to be a carpenter of the trade guild of Ephesus you had to belong to that trade guild by paying homage to the god that that trade guild was associated with so think of trade guilds as the ancient version of unions I don't know what you feel about unions but I can tell you what they felt about trade guilds they they weren't fans of them and yet it was the way to make a living it's how you had to work and so when they were part of these trade guilds and were forced to participate in these religious ceremonies, they had, they had some choices, some consequential choices. Do I participate in these things in order to keep my job, to provide for my family, or do I stand against these and risk, lo- not just losing my job, but having my property confiscated, being put in prison, being killed? Because in varying parts of uh, the Roman Empire, there was varying severities of consequences for these actions. And the reason this was the case is because, as I mentioned previously, in the Roman mindset, not only the success or failure of the empire, but the success or failure of a business was contingent on the favor or disfavor of the God. And so Christians refused to participate in these. And so oftentimes, they lost job. people refused to do business with them. They lost their job. Their properties were confiscated. Some were put in prison and some were killed. And through all of that, there was the underlying temptation Forsake one's allegiance to Christ because then all these consequences would go away. If you you just participate in this, if you just forsake the fact that Jesus is Lord and is only one worthy of worship, you wouldn't have to deal with any of the economic consequences that come with that choice. Now, the situation in Rome was an eight or nine on like the pain scale. Remember, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, You know, tell me your pain, the scale of one to ten. So, Rome, let's say it's an eight or nine. I would say our present situation is probably a one or two in comparison to it. We don't want to overestimate it. We don't want to underestimate it. Maybe one or two, maybe maybe trending three. Yet, there are instances, if you just read through the headlines recently, of the type of situations where this is subtly rearing its ugly head. For example, what do you do when your company asks you to participate in their celebration of Pride Month by wearing a rainbow badge? And they don't mean to celebrate the Noahic Covenant by that. What is a Christian cake baker to do when a same-sex couple asks for a wedding cake? What do you do when a number of the stores you shop at and companies you buy from publicly start supporting agendas and giving money to different ideological groups that you are opposed to because of your Christian convictions? What is the athletic coach supposed to do when his director tells him that if he wants to keep his job, he has to stop quoting the Bible and stop leading his team in prayer? Now, these are all not just hypotheticals. I drew those from real headlines from recent news. And they've happened in some form or fashion very recently. And in those situations, it requires wisdom. I do not have a formula to give you for how you navigate. You're probably wondering, you know, what's the three-step formula to navigate? I don't have it. God does not give us one. But he does give us some principles that we must remember in the midst of those type of situations. One is... We must remember that our heavenly citizenship is far more significant and far more precious than our earthly citizenship because here we have no lasting city. But we look for the city which is to come, whose designer and builder is God, the city that will last forever. We must remember in the midst of those situations that our real treasure is hidden with God in Christ, it is tied up in the kingdom of God, which We wait for eagerly which will last forever and it's kept safe for us in a new heavens and a new earth and no amount of earthly treasure is worth sacrificing that heavenly treasure for and we must remember that it might get a little worse it might get a lot worse it might get medium worse it might get a little better it might get a lot better it might get medium better in one sense it doesn't matter what the future is going to look like economically and socially for christians well in what sense does it not matter in the sense that Whatever comes your way in the future, you have the promise of Matthew 6, 25 to 34. You have a heavenly father who feeds the birds of the air, who clothes the lilies of the field in such wonder and beauty and such great provision, and yet he cares for you more than all of those. And so you have a heavenly father upon whom you can cast all your cares about an unknown future because you know him. You have a heavenly father that you can cast all your cares about a changing future because you have a Heavenly Father who has unchanging character and faithfulness. And that is where we rest our head at the end of the night. We rest our head not because we have unlocked from the outer recesses of the internet all of the future events that are going to come. It's because we have a Heavenly Father who knows the outcome of every future event and is in control of all of it. That's where we rest. Now, as we move forward in our passage, we get to the... The interesting stuff, the juicy stuff, as they would say. In connection with this tactic of economic discrimination, John mentions a mark that is forced upon people so that they can participate in the economic realm and the social realm. Look at verses 16 and 17. Causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast, or the number of its name. So the burning question on everyone's mind is, what is this mark? And why is George Soros trying to make me wear it? Just kidding. (laughs) That was a joke, okay? I'm just seeing who's awake. The burning question on everyone's mind is truly, what is this mark? And usually, I've found, there's kind of two unnerving follow-up questions that come with this question. Not only what is this mark, but what if I've already received this mark? Or what if when it comes in the future, I'm not aware of what it is and I accidentally take it? What's going to happen to me? It's kind of like, when, I don't know if you've had this, where you, you read through the Gospels and then Jesus talks about the unpardonable sin. Well, when you read that, don't you kind of think, did I did I do that? That's This is kind of the nature of that question as well. So I'm going I'm to hopefully put that to rest for you. Because to answer this question, what is the mark? we need to see two things. One is the other mark that John is intentionally contrasting it with. There are two marks in Revelation that stand opposed and counter to one another. Then the other thing we need to see to understand the mark is the Old Testament background that lies behind how John describes this mark in Revelation 13. So first, what is the mark that John contrasts this with that the beast is trying to counterfeit? So look at verse 1 of chapter 14. So right after John mentions the mark of the beast, he mentions a different mark, the mark of the lamb. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. Then I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. This is why sometimes chapter divisions can be sometimes they they cause us to miss a connection that we're meant to see. The reason John puts this right after the mark of the beast is because he says, but don't worry about that mark because there's another mark for believers, the mark of the lamb the name of the lamb and the name of the father on the the forehead of believers. And so in contrast to the earthly followers of the beast, you have here the heavenly followers of the lamb. And in contrast to the name of the beast being placed on his followers forehead, the mark of the lamb, the name of the lamb and the name of the father are placed on the lamb's followers foreheads. And so in the Old Testament, the high priest in Exodus 26 has all of his garments described. And one of the pieces of his garment was this this headdress, this hat that he would wear. And written across the forehead of that hat that he would wear when he was in his function as the great high priest was the statement, holy to the Lord. That statement written across the forehead. And it was placed there as a mark representing that this is the priest of the true and living God. That this man is dedicated to the service. of Lord. This man has been set apart and consecrated to the Lord so that he can draw near and have access to the Lord in a unique and special way because God has placed his name upon him. That's the background of the Lamb's name and the Father's name being placed upon the forehead of his followers. All followers of the Lamb, all believers in Christ have written on their forehead, not literally, but truly and spiritually, holy to the Lamb, holy to the Father. When anyone is in Christ, guess what? You join the priesthood of all believers. You have the same privileges and better than the high priest in the Old Testament. You have access to the father because his name is placed upon you. He's marked you out as his own. You have been consecrated to the service of God. You are not your own for you bought with a price and God has placed his name upon you. He has marked you as his. Well, now consistent with Satan's character, he makes counterfeit copies of what the Lord does in order to deceive and enslave. So by setting these two contrasting marks side by side, John is showing us that when you pull back the curtain on reality, when you see it from the right perspective, you need to understand there's only two groups of people and there's only two marks that identify those two groups of people. Those who follow the lamb by faith are marked by the lamb. And those who reject the lamb, either by ignoring him or rebelling against him outright, by default follow the beast and are marked by him. There is no neutral ground in this world. That's what John's saying. The world is very simple in one sense, divided in two ways, followers of the lamb and the followers of the beast. There's no sitting on the fence. There's no no man's land. There's no both. And it's an either or when it comes to this matter. So once that John is calling his readers who, who hear this, who marks you? Who do you follow? Do you follow the lamb by faith? Or have you ignored him and rejected him? Well, another thing we need to see to understand this mark of the beast is the Old Testament background of this mark. So notice that when John describes it in verse 16, he mentions it's a mark on the right hand or the forehead, right hand and the forehead. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter six. Deuteronomy chapter six. There's a place in the Old Testament, for Jews who understood the Old Testament very well, where the hand and the forehead was absolutely significant it was in fact the most important thing that they recited on a daily basis it's the Shema Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 to 9 and this type of imagery of the right hand and the forehead being marked shows up there and I think this is what John is saying that Satan is seeking to copy and mimic and counterfeit Deuteronomy 6 4 to 9 Hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your might and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Now here's the key text. You shall bind them as a sign or mark on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So I think verse eight is kind of the parallel concept to what John is talking about in Revelation 13, seven. That for the Jews... They had this thing that they recited every day where the word of God, the fact that the Lord is our God, was to be, as it were, written on their hand and written on their forehead. Now, some Pharisees took this very literally and they'd actually walk around with these phylacteries tied to their hands and their forehead where they had scrolls of Bible verses in there. And Jesus kind of called them out for saying, I think you're being a little too literal there. What he meant by is that the word should be on our heart, so much so that the part of the body that is associated with action, with habit, with manner of life, our hand should be marked by the word of God. And it should be so written on your heart that the part of your body, which is associated with your thinking, with the frame of view of your world, the front lip between your eyes, your forehead should be marked by the word of God. So Moses is saying is that the hand being the part of the body associated with behavior, with action, with manner of life is let love for the Lord, our God govern and guide every action of your life. The front lip between your eyes, your forehead, associated with thinking, your mind, your worldview. Let love for the Lord our God be the framework and filter of all your thinking. Let love for God teach you how to think about all of life and how to evaluate everything you come across in life. Now, going back to Revelation 13, the beast is counterfeiting this thing that the Lord had seen to impress upon his people. So the mark of the beast is basically a reverse engineering of Deuteronomy 6.8. Let love for God be written on your hand and written across your forehead. The mark of the beast, in my view, is not a tattoo, it's not a barcode, it's not a vaccine, it's not a microchip. No, it's more deadly and more real than that. The mark of the beast is when the primary and fundamental guiding and governing force of one's actions is not love for God, but love for self. It's when it's not submission to God, but rebellion against God. It's when it's not dependence on the Lord, but autonomy to do what I please. That is a mark of the beast. Furthermore, the mark of the beast is when the primary and fundamental framework and filter of your thinking is not God's objective word, but your subjective feelings. It's when it's not what would please the Lord, but what would please me. It is not the counsel of the Lord, but the counsel of the ungodly. So to simplify it, the mark of the beast is when a person's thinking and actions are dominated by ungodliness, either through ignoring God and living without reference to him, or by outright rejecting him and saying, I will do what I want. Not your will, but mine be done. That is the mark of the beast. If the mark of the beast were described in psalm like language, it would sound something like this Cursed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked and stands in the way of sinners and sits in the seat of scoffers, but ignores and rejects the law of the Lord day and night. His thinking is like chaff that is blown and tossed by every wind and wave of culture. His life is like a house built on sand. The rains fall and the floods come and the winds blow and great is the crash of that house in the end. That is what the Mark of the Beast would sound like if we were put into a psalm. Now, if you are in Christ you believe in him, have entrusted yourself to him, you need not lose a millisecond of sleep over whether you have accidentally or will accidentally in the future take the mark of the beast. Because guess what? You're marked by the lamb. And being marked by the lamb, the father's name and the lamb's name is placed upon you. And since you are marked by the lamb, you cannot be marked by the beast. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He who is in you is jealous for you and will not share you with another. The hope of being in Christ is not in us. It's in him. It's in his jealousy. It's in his faithfulness to us. It's in the fact that he is faithful even when we are faithless. We can't get that mixed up. And yet now, being marked by the lamb, it is your delightful duty to increasingly live in light of that mark. Remember, Royal children, royal behavior. That's what Queen Elizabeth would say to her kids when they, royal children, royal behavior. In your thinking, put on the mind of Christ so that you increasingly think of all of life in a Christ-centered way. You think about your money, your use of technology, how you think about your purchases, your possessions, whatever it is in a Christ-centered way. And in your actions, put on the character of Christ so that you increasingly forgive as you've been forgiven by God in Christ. So you increasingly serve as you've been served by Christ. So you increasingly welcome one another as you have been welcomed by God in Christ. The greatest countermeasure you can do against the beast and all his beastly influence is go about your everyday, ordinary life living as if you were not your own because you've been bought with a price. So you're called to gratefully glorify God in everything you do, as mundane and ordinary as it is. That is the greatest countermeasure against the mark of the beast. All right, well, now that we've dealt with the mark of the beast, uh, we have now the number of the beast. So there's there's another burning issue. And I'm going to quickly try and cover this. So look at verse 18 with me. So he mentions the economic discrimination, the social ostracism that comes through this mark. And now he says this. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So many have understood this as a code that we need to crack to uncover the name of the beast, the Antichrist. That if we, if we just crack the code, we'll get the name, and we'll be golden. And we can write books, we can sell them, all these different things. It'd be great. <laughs> well, the key to cracking the code, many would say, is understanding the ancient practice of gematria. Now, gematria is when you assign a number to a letter, so you can take someone's name, add it up, and you come out with a number. So to illustrate this, for example, let's say we take the English alphabet. A to Z, 26 letters. Each letter is assigned a number. A, 1, Z, 26. Now, if you are to take my name, so my full name is Andrew Leo Jacobson. My number, thankfully, is 176. Okay? I'm good. <laughs> if, you're, if you're worried. But, okay, if you use my full preferred title, the esteemed Reverend Andrew Leo Jacobson, <laughs> thankfully, my number is 376. Okay? Now, I could go on. I could elaborate with more adjectives. I could probably get it to equal 666 at some point. But... That's okay, that's how encoding. So you could do it, you know, kids, you could you can take the alphabet, you could do it, you could add it up. That's how the encoding of gematria Now it was a real thing. It, it did exist. So, example, in one of the um, ancient ruins that they found near one of the sites in Jerusalem, they they dug up and in a cave, someone said, I love her, whose number is 545. So he's obviously too much of a coward to say her name right now. So he put this number out there. So it's a real thing. And yet. I don't know if it's the thing that John is getting at. I don't think he meant to put in this very deep, intricate code. And yet many have used it to say that it was probably the Emperor Nero. Because if you take the title Emperor and his name Nero, and you transliterate it from the Greek into the Hebrew, and then add it up, it, it can, if you're clever enough, equal 666. And believe it or not, this, this could be your homework assignment. I've been told one kid to do this yesterday. If you go on YouTube and you type in any recent president's name from recent history. And then right next to the name, you type 666. Have fun. Just watch the video. That'd be some interesting... I mean, I remember in in Hebrew language class, the first thing our teacher showed us was a video of someone trying to make a case that Barack Obama's name translated into Hebrew equals 666. And he said, this is not how we're going to learn Hebrew, but I just thought that'd be entertaining. (laughs) Now, I find that about as as ridiculous as it is mildly entertaining. And I think John gives us this number not to encode the identity of a specific individual but to reveal to us some characteristics of the beast and his various manifestations throughout history in different forms and fashions so he says it is the number of a man man being the operative word human finite frail meaning that the beast may deceive many people into thinking that he is a godlike figure a divine-like figure worthy of worship and religious devotion but what john is saying for the christian Remember, he's a man. We do not bow the knee to any man, no matter how many, how powerful, how oppressive they may be. We bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is given the name above every name, who sits on the throne above every throne. It's the number of a man, because the beast made to see people into thinking he's invincible, he's unstoppable. In fact, in Revelation 13 earlier, they say at the end of verse four, "Who is like the beast?" And who can fight against it? There's almost a sense of like, there's no way we can stand against this oppressive power. And yet John is saying, it's a man in the end. And the best man is a man at best and fallen and finite and frail. And so for the Christian, whoever the beast is, whoever the beast is going to show up throughout in history and be finally, he is a creature who has to stand before his creator and answer to the wrath and justice of the creator one day, no matter how powerful he may seem. And it is the number... 666. Six, six. So what we've seen so far in Revelation is that the number most often associated with the Father, with the Lamb, is the number seven. So in the Bible, the number seven, because of its uh, place in Genesis, on the seventh day, God finished his work. He rested. He blessed it. He called it very good. The number seven is that number of fullness, perfection, completion. The number most associated with true divinity, the true God. And yet hear the number fall short of it each time. Six, six, six. It never reaches that number of fullness, completion, perfection. Because try as the beast might to copy and mimic and counterfeit the Lord, he always falls short. He always comes out in the end to be a counterfeit. It's like someone who who tries as best as they can to make a counterfeit $100 bill. Some have gotten better at others, and yet each time, no matter how hard they try, in the end, it is still worth $0. It still is a counterfeit. The numbers of completion and perfection would be seven, seven, seven. So in the end, the beast will be exposed as a cheap counterfeit and he will be dealt with accordingly. Now let me end with this. I realize I've been going on for a long, I got my voice back and now all I can do is talk, right? (laughs) My family loves it. Um, (laughs) What I've always found troubling about this issue surrounding the mark of the beast and the number of the beast is how professing Christians spend more time and energy trying to know who the Antichrist is than knowing who the real Christ is. It's, it's a, a wrong division of labor in the Christian life, right? There are people who have their charts memorized. They have scoured the, elder, the outer realms of the internet to uncover the, the next great move of the beast, what he's going to do, and who it might be. And yet, if you'd ask those same people to explain some of the glorious depths of the mysteries of the hypostatic union of the two natures of Christ, they would look at you as if you were the conspiracy theorist. Because hypothetic hypostatic what? And yet, if the term hypostatic union doesn't mean anything to you, it probably should because it is one of the most glorious doctrines in all the Bible. Now, the term's not found in the Bible, but our salvation rests on the fact that Christ is fully God and fully man. And so what I mean by that is I want to leave you with this end times formula. For every one thought you give to the mark of the beast and the number of the beast, give ten thoughts to the worthiness of and identity of the lamb. That is how you should live going forward. Let's pray.